Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 17 this morning. Love for God and the brethren. Again, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to borrow one from us, you can find one in the row in front of you uh, there. That's page 848. 848. John 15, verses 9 through 17. And we are continuing our study of the Gospel of John this morning in chapter 15. We now move from the illustration of the vine, the vine dresser and the branches that we looked at last week to the application Jesus is making in the context of this conversation with his 11 men, Judas now having gone out to betray Jesus. So if you're able to, would you please uh, stand with me just one more time this morning. John chapter 15, I'm going to read aloud as you follow along, verses 9 through 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. God's Word through the Apostle John, Jesus speaking, of course, here in chapter 15, verse 9, states, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command, to, uh, command you so that you will love one another. You may be seated. That is the New Testament reading of God's Word. May both the old and new be a blessing as we've heard it read aloud. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, once again we come and ask that your Holy Spirit who indwells believers, who inspired these words we'll study together in the original autographs and uh, Lord, um, can now enlighten us, can open our eyes and our hearts and give us understanding and bring application uh, to us. And so we pray for that. We pray, Lord, as well for those who do not know you who are in our midst, that your spirit might convict them, that you might draw them through your spirit, and that you would give them the gift of repentance and faith after they being regenerated by the spirit, that they would then uh, believe the gospel Lord, this is indeed a gospel-rich passage. We pray, Lord, that you would do your work in our hearts this morning. Lord, continue to humble us, and I pray that you would get me out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. The pocket dictionary of theological terms defines love in this way. In the Christian tradition, love, especially the word you may be familiar with from the Greek, agape, is an expression of the essential nature of God. 
the perfect characterization of the relationship between God and humans and the supernatural virtue or character of God reflected in the Christian community in relation to God and one another as shaped by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This connection between love and God's own character gives rise to Christian focus on love as the fundamental characteristic of Christian discipleship and hence of Christian ethics. Many Christian thinkers suggest that the essence of love is unconditional giving of oneself for the sake of others. And you can see why I read that definition this morning based on what we're studying together in John 15, where Jesus calls for the disciples to love God and to love one another. This definition is a helpful summary of our sermon today. It highlights the ways in which Jesus speaks of love, its connection to God, not in relation to uh, the Godhead, perfect Trinitarian love, not only in relation to that, but also to God's love towards humanity as in we love because God first loved us. In fact, when you hear that quote, we love because God first loved us, it's a quote from John, the same author of the Gospel of John, his first epistle, which seems to be rooted in what Jesus says here. Listen to the words of 1 John 4, 7 through 21. And, and you can turn there if you'd like, but I also am just going to read it for you. 1 John 4, 7 through 21. But my, my call to you this morning as you hear this or as you read it is to meditate upon it. Let it permeate the way in which we think about the words of Christ in our passage today. 1 John 4, 7 through 21 reads this. Beloved, and you even hear in that Uh, opening uh, phrase there, beloved, love, right? Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Just, Just absorb this this morning. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we, notice this word, abide in Him. Important word for our passage this morning. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have to come, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. That's twice now he said that. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Notice the parallel to belief in Christ as God abiding and now loving as abiding. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Quick statement real, uh, real quickly here. I know I just said quick twice. But um, 
notice he says uh, we have confidence for the day of judgment. There's no fear in love because love casts out fear of what? Of being judged. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, it seems foolish to think that what John says here in his first epistle is not connected to what words of Jesus he records in our passage today, from which we get our main points. This is written for you on the back of your worship folder that I hope you grabbed on your way in, or if you're watching from home, it's been emailed to you. Here's the main point. Godly love is interwoven with obedience, joy, sacrifice, and reconciliation. Godly love is interwoven with obedience, joy, sacrifice, and reconciliation. So I want us to see these four outcomes to which godly love leads. Godly love, number one, four outcomes, but the first one is this. Godly love leads to obedience in verses 9 and 10. Once again, just kind of thinking about the context in which Jesus says the words that we study together this morning, it is as Jesus is leaving the upper room and he is drawing a distinction between uh, them, uh, him declaring them clean and Judas as one who is not clean. That's what he's doing with the whole vine illustration. Uh, he has said, you are clean earlier in the foot washing. And then as he goes through the passage about the vine, he says, those that are truly in the vine will flourish because they're attached to the vine. And yes, there's a purging, there's a cleaning that happens. Just like when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you are clean, but you need your feet washed because there's always pruning and cleaning that goes on in the Christian life. Thus it is for those that are truly attached to the vine. But those that are not attached to the vine, signaled by Judas leaving to go betray Jesus... Those who are not attached to the vine are cut out and thrown to the fire. There are only two kinds of people. Those who are truly attached to the vine and those that have an appearance of being attached to the vine. And the proof is in the fruit or the lack thereof. That's what Jesus is illustrating in last week's passage. And in the same vein of abiding in the vine, Jesus now turns to the issue of love. So this is, this is indeed for those who are in the vine. They're, they're abiding in Him. They're abiding in His love. Ones who are in Christ are those who have a love that is characterized by being godly. By being godly. In his epistle, as I mentioned, the same author of our current study says, as we saw, God is love. There is no true understanding of love without understanding that God is love. Now, that doesn't mean that unbelievers can't love, but it it means that they cannot fully grasp or understand where love comes from unless they understand that God is love. God is love. This brings us once again to speaking of the doctrine of simplicity, that God is. God is. When the Bible says, bridges something like God is love, 
It is telling us that God is something in and of himself. There's no external thing that makes him that way. This is who God is. He is. It is all of who he is. God is not made up of parts. This is what we mean when we say simplicity. God is. And so we understand love because God is love. God is all of who he is. And has been that eternally. There is no change of him in him. There is no shadow of change in him. The abstract of principle summarizes this stating, There is but one God, the maker, preserver, and ruler of all things, having in and of himself all perfections and being infinite in them all. That's a summary of the London Baptist Confession, which says it this way, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God who whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach us unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, notice this one, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Rejoice for a moment in that truth of who God is. But did you hear in the midst of all of that, of that awe-rendering description of our God, That he is most loving. This is not to a degree compared to anyone since he is incomparable. It is that God is love and all measures of love outside of him cannot compare. Because there is no external standard by which to measure God. He is love and he is the measurement. That's the point. But he will not clear the guilty. Love does not assume no condemnation for the guilty, which is all of us. We needed one who was not guilty to stand in our place, which of course is the Lord Jesus, who actually brings up this kind of perfect love in a moment. In the sense that he goes to the cross as the perfect one, bearing away the sins of all who would believe in him. And he does it because he loves the Father and he loves his sheep. His is a perfect love. And is the first to, he is the first to love perfectly without fault to ever walk the earth. Have you ever considered that? Jesus Christ walked the earth perfectly loving. Perfectly loving. Though Adam and Eve began in perfect love, they did not remain in that love. But Christ, the second Adam, comes and fulfills this perfect love. Therefore, he says in verse 9, we're finally getting to our passage. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide 
in my love. As the Father has loved me, in which way has the Father loved the Son? Perfectly, because God is what? Love. Love. So have I loved you perfectly. Abide. Dwell. Be attached to my love. Part of the abiding of which Jesus speaks earlier is that of abiding in His love. When He speaks of abiding in the vine, He's speaking, now He's explaining this, abiding in His love. And how does one abide in this love? Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as, let me give you an example, Jesus says, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. They and we must keep His commandments and abide in His love. He then compares this to His keeping of His Father's commandments, specifically in the Incarnation. And that is how Christ abides in the love of God. It is in fact because He has done this in His Incarnation, in His humanity, that He stands in our place and does this so that we might imitate Him in our Christian life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus, the perfect eternal Son of God, uh, comes to earth, puts on humanity, and keeps God's commandments perfectly. Because, guess what? I think you know this. You and I cannot. And we needed someone who could. And yet, he says, in the same way that I have kept my Father's commandments. You too are to do that. It is not from our own strength, as we will see in, in a moment. It is from the, from the reality of Christ's imputed righteousness to us. His perfections uh, given to us. We, we, we live out of that. And what are those commandments? Well, Jesus thankfully tells us. In summary, it is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, clearly that needs to be fleshed out. It applies in different ways in different circumstances in the way that we do that. But it is the standard. Jesus is about to explain how he has done this and will fulfill this loving obedience to his Father. But for now, we understand that our obedience and love is grounded in his. We're not not calling you this morning from the Scriptures to to muster up strength within yourself and, 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 and press on really hard to do this so that God will love you. No, because God loved you, Jesus did it on your behalf, and you can now live out of that does it mean there's not difficulty or striving against sin or those kinds of things? Of course, we, 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 we are battling against sin. But he's about to tell us that this is a joyful thing. But he tells us, first and foremost, it's grounded in what he has done. Remember, he says above, apart from me, you can do how many things? Nothing. Nothing. The fact that He can command the disciples and us to do this is because the foundation has been laid by Christ. When we are regenerated and baptized into Christ, we are given His Spirit and His righteousness is imputed to us and we are, in light of this, able to obey in love and abide in His love and to, as He says previously, what does this do? This brings glory to God. That's what He said. When you bear fruit, 
You bring glory to God. That's what he says in the previous passage that we studied last week. Notice in verses 9 and 10 the two-sided aspects to love. As the Father has loved me, this expresses the perfect and eternal intra-Trinitarian love. And just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, speaking of Jesus' activities in time and space as the true God, yes, but also as true man. Again, Jesus uh, succeeds where Adam and the rest of us fail. Jesus keeps the law perfectly and does so in our place. We see both the expression of true God as the eternal Son of God and true man in the incarnation and his earthly ministry. And it is glorious in this passage. The question, though, for us is how do we then abide in the love of Christ and the Father? Well, he's answered that for us. We obey his commands. Again, it is not that we do so in order to earn His love, but rather that we prove our love for Him and that we gratefully obey, knowing that God gives His law to us as a gift for the enjoyment of life. Let me draw this out for you again. I know that the last few weeks we've talked about this quite a bit. Guilt, grace, gratitude. The law to the unbeliever brings guilt because we realize we cannot keep it. Grace is Jesus keeping it in our place, dying for us so that what sins we have committed are forgiven and we are reconciled to God and His righteousness, His active obedience in obeying the law is given to us and then the law is given to us as a delight. In fact, we're going to see in just a moment that Jesus says this is how we live joyful lives. Think again of the command that Jesus gives earlier, that they should love one another sacrificially as he has showed showed them in the foot washing event, as well as what that foreshadows concerning the cross. Indeed, he will draw out sacrifice as a piece of this moment, as we shall see. And for believers, this is the trajectory trajectory we are on this morning, is understanding this. Loving, obedient submission to God. But for the unbeliever, my call to you this morning is to recognize that guilt aspect of the law. You cannot keep it. Only Jesus could keep it. Your striving will be fruitless and faulty to eternal condemnation. Turn from your sin and trust in the only one who could stand in your place, Jesus Christ. So we've seen that godly love leads to obedience because we love him who first loved us. Now we see, secondly, godly love leads to full joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. These things, he says, the preceding encouragements and imperatives are not for any attainment of favor with God, but rather so that the joy of Jesus may be in those who uh, do these things, and by so doing, their joy may be full. What is the joy of Jesus? It is to, in the incarnation, obey the Father. What does Hebrews say that the joy, the joy that was set before him to endure what? The cross. The fulfillment of the plan. The, the great eternal plan of the triune Godhead to rescue 
humanity from their sin. To bring ultimate glory to God's name. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy is that God would be glorified and that mankind would be reconciled. The idea of loving God and loving another and bearing fruit is not the diminishment of joy, but for the acquirement of joy. What is Jesus' joy? It's to do the will, the will of him who sent him. He says this throughout the majority of the beginning part of the Gospel of John. His joy is to do the will of the Father. And He does it perfectly. And in so doing, His joy can be in us. And our joy can be made full. Loving God and loving one another and bearing fruit is not for the diminishment of joy, but for the acquirement of joy. It leads to the fullness of joy. And this is not some arbitrary joy, as if there could be such a thing, but this is Christ's joy. His word spoken to them for His joy to be in them for the fullness of their joy. What words has He spoken to them? It seems that the words just prior to this are what He's referencing. If they abide in Him, if they love Him, which is evidenced through their obedience to Him, they will have the fullness of joy. Can I say something shocking to you? Yes. God, thank you. God, God is for our joy. If we are in Christ, God is for our joy. God is not the cosmic killjoy of the universe. God is the filler of joy for those who are in Him. Amen. Now, does that mean there are never times where we are discouraged, depressed, um, unsure of what God is doing, questioning His goodness, His grace, His love. No, because we're still in this flesh. We're still needing to deal with the effects of sin that still dwell in this flesh. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 7, who can you know, free me from this body of death? Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, And then he, then he um, uh, talks about the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, reminding again, of that point. Because what is the struggle, brothers and sisters? The struggle is against our fallen flesh that needs to be redeemed. And we feel that. Don't we? We agree with Paul the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I really want to do, I don't do. What is the struggle? It is that the flesh needs to still be redeemed. But the hope is not, I really, hope, I really wish that that would happen. No, it is certain that it will happen. That's Paul's. Uh, point in Romans 7, but God is for our joy. And what does He lay out for us? He says, if you do these things, this won't earn my favor or my love. That's already been earned through my Son. But this will bring joy to your heart and life. In other words, when we look at the law and in, in, in the third use of it for, for the um, believer to know how to live which is, again, boiled down to love God and love neighbor, what does that do for us? It brings us joy. Now, if you're striving to keep that in order to make yourself right with God, it will not bring joy. It will bring discouragement. It will bring failure. But if from in Christ, who has done this on your behalf, you live it out, it is for your joy. So how do I look at these Commandments. 
as God being for my joy. And, and if you think about that, I mean, let's think about the one that kind of wraps it all up. You know, don't be covetous. What does covetousness produce? Well, Paul says it produces idolatry in all sorts of forms. I, I really think that that is a, a summary of the anti-love that when we disobey God's commands. It's covetousness. Paul outlines that as the major sin, as it were. Because what is it saying? God, I'm not satisfied in what you have given me. I want a better wife. I want a better life. I want a better house. I want a better whatever they have. And and James says we're willing to kill to do that. No, my joy is in, thank you, Lord. I love you, Lord. You're so good to me, God. I have not earned any of this. I did not deserve it. You gave it to me freely, knowing that, in fact, you gave, me your, you gave your son on my behalf. God is for our joy. I think that's a mindset, dear ones, that we have to have as we think about obedience to God. This is for my joy. Because we're, again, battling the flesh. And the flesh says, that is not for your joy. <laughs> that is for the diminishment of your joy. Because the flesh, the world, and the devil tell us a lie about what is fulfilling. By the way, what does the author of Proverbs tell us? In the end, it is like bitter wormwood. Amen. There's no joy in that. We have to think about the commandments as those things which bring us joy because we are in Christ. Well, we see thirdly, godly love leads to sacrifice. Godly love leads to sacrifice. In verses 12 and 13, once again, Jesus commands them to love one another. This is part and parcel of the message that he continues to give. But he amplifies what the time of the foot washing was illustration, illustrating. His command to love one another as he has loved them extends to what he is about to do. Look at verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, so pause there for a moment. The disciples, perhaps we can get into their minds a little bit here. Okay, he's already told us this. Right? We're to love one another as he has loved us. That means foot washing, right? Putting on the position of a of a servant, the greatest, the master, the creator of the universe is kind of clicking in their heads, has, has stooped low and has washed my dirty feet. So I must love sacrificially like that. Okay, we got that. So maybe they're processing that. But then he says this, verse 13, greater love has no one than this. Washing feet, I got it. <laughs> no, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Someone lay down his life for his friends. His command to love one another as he has loved them extends to what he's about to do. Go to the cross to die for undeserving people who deserve what he will take upon himself. Namely, the justice of God, God's righteous wrath towards sin. This is the undercurrent of what he's saying. He is about to give up his life for those he considers his friends. And yet, this is not the end. He calls them to love each other in the same way. So now we take the command that he says will bring fullness of joy to love God and to love others. And he puts 
uh, an addendum on what it means to love others. And he says, you've got to be willing to sacrifice yourself. Especially as it relates to friends. This is the kind of love that earmarks the church, especially as we think about the local assembly. We cannot get around this. Christ says that we are to love him in this way. How great should our love be to the extent that we are willing to give our lives for one another? Now, we typically experience this without literally having to think about dying for one another. But we may be tested to this degree. I think the time is probably coming where there will be a need of such great sacrifice for the brethren that it will display the, great, the greatest love to the world. Why? Because it's, a, it's an echo of, of Jesus' sacrifice. And we think about the great martyrs of the, of the early church and, and how they gave their life for the cause of the gospel And we shouldn't underplay that at all, but do we think often of how that might have and likely did happen even amongst one another? Like, I'm going to make sure that you don't suffer harm because I'm going to step in your place. The world will wonder how we could love each other so. But the thing we need to recognize and absorb this morning is that that kind of love begins now. You don't wait for the testing for that to happen. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I focused on me? Or am I focused on others? Especially as it relates to being covenant members with one another within this local assembly. The practice of that kind of love begins now. Fourthly, godly love leads to proper relationship with God and brethren. Godly love leads to proper relationship. This is reconciliation with God and brethren. Tying this together, Jesus says that they are his friends. In other words, he is going to lay down his life for them. But look at what he says next. You are my friends, verse 14, if you do what I command you. So what has he just said? Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for I have, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Tying this together, Jesus says they are his friend. In other words, he is going to lay down his life for them. But how do they prove they are his friends? They do what he says. They prove their love for him, that they are his friends through obedience to him. Remember, this is not because of their best efforts, but because they are in Christ. Especially as just, you know, within hours he gives his life for them. As Carson says rightly in his commentary, this obedience is not what makes them friends, it's what characterizes his friends. 
It's not because we obey that we are His friends. It's because we are His that we are His friends. And that is the the, the foundation for obedience. And so we are, once again, reminded of the gospel foundation of all of this. There is no life without God outside of His reconciliation with us through the cross. We must be reconciled to God. We must be reconciled to God. And when He saves us, we are not His enemies, but His friends. We are not servants alone, but as verse 15 says, He no longer calls them servants, but friends. For the servant does not know what this master is, what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. What, has, uh, what He has made known to them is what He is about to do. And He has instructed them how to carry on once He is gone, and that He and the Father will send another. What is Jesus doing here? He's preparing them. He's preparing them for when He dies, when He is raised. Yes, they will rejoice, but He is going away. Another is coming, and He is saying, you must carry this on. What He has made known to them is what He's about to do. And He's instructed them how to carry on once He is gone. And He promises that He and the Father will send the Holy Spirit as a comforter. He explains this in a threefold manner here at the end of these verses. As we just said, He has told them what the Father has told them. He also chose them so they might bear fruit. Look at what it says. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is truly the case for every believer. I know some people want to limit this to the fact that he chose them as his disciples. But he he goes on to say more than that, he has chosen them to bear fruit. That's only true of believers. This is true of every believer. We did not choose God. He chose us and causes us to bear fruit. And that is a working of the Father for our good and His glory. Think about how Paul extrapolates this in Ephesians 2, 8-10. through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not by your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice Paul draws from Christ here. It is not because of what we do, but because of what he has done. And what he has done is not only to save us, but to make us his workmanship in Christ Jesus so that we might work the works that he has given us to do. Therefore, this serves as the basis for what we do. And serves as the basis for what we ask. Because he does go on to say, whatever you ask in my Father's name, I will do it. As I mentioned last week, he, he, he says this in the earlier passage. This is not a kind of a, a carte blanche, blank check kind of an idea here. This is in line with God's will. Which Jesus, who is God, is expressing in their need to love and obey him and love each other. And that is the third part we see here at the end. He has commanded them in order that they would love each other in verse 17. Look at it. These things I command you so that you will love one another. 
All that he tells them boils down to this. Just as they are to love the triune God through obedience to him, so in that obedience they are to love one another. This is what Jesus calls the greatest commandment after all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Believer, this is manifested in your life by obedience to God, which is not a drudgery but a delight. It is so that your joy may be what? Full. Complete. Amen. And love of neighbor certainly is seen most evidently in the love we have for one another in the local assembly. Caring for each other, pointing each other to the truths of Scripture, to the hope of the gospel, holding each other up in prayer, reaching out to one another, sacrificing for one another. It does also clearly extend to loving those who are our enemies, as Jesus illustrates in the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. And we must, while meeting physical needs, also meet the spiritual need of proclaiming the gospel to those whom God gives us opportunity to help. But Jesus' focus here is not on those who are enemies of God and Christ, but within the family right now. So we must do this. And as we do so, dear ones, in His power and His strength, by His Spirit whom He has given us, and He has expressed that throughout this passage, there is joy. There is delight. And you will find as you submit in this way that that is true. When we believe the lie of our flesh, of the world, of the devil, that everything that God says doesn't satisfy will satisfy, we will find very quickly that it truly does not satisfy. But that God does satisfy And in the end, if we love him, he is our treasure. He is our treasure. And so, I call to those in our midst who have not trusted in Christ, turn from your sin. Perhaps you're striving to be reconciled to God. You can't do it. Christ did it in in your behalf. You have to trust him. And that is my call to you. Would you pray with me? Lord, for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, which is the glory of God and the good of your people. And you ask us to follow you, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Father, Son, and Spirit, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, may we exercise that within especially the local assembly here, and certainly, Lord, first and foremost to you, as that which is delightful and brings the fullness of joy. And Lord, when we fall short, may we not say, oh, I messed up again and God must not love me. No, you showed your love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let us remember in what we are rooted, in whose righteousness we are able to perform It is not our own, but it is yours. And it is for our joy. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you that 
even this moment, your spirit might make them alive unto salvation, that they would be granted repentance and faith, that they might turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.